interesting thing about going through the story of the coming of Jesus the first time is the story itself. Uh, the way that the Son of God was had prepared for him to come into the world was not like you and I would prepare the world for the coming of our own children. Uh, we would put up a banner. Uh, we would you know, put it on Facebook. Hey, we got a kid coming. Uh, we might even put up a picture and say, hey, in April, our daughter's going to be a big sister. You know, that's kind of what we did, right? Um, but the way that God did it was through the ages, he over and over again through the prophets said, I'm going to send you this kinsman redeemer. He's going to be born of the nation of Israel and he's going to come and he's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to take over and deal with the oppressive government that they live within. He's going to make things right that have not been right since the beginning of mankind. He's going to take rebellious man and he's going to redeem him. He's going to buy him back even though he was sold over to sin and the power of sin. And so God throughout the Old Testament is pointing forward to when Jesus will come and set things right. He'll make it right. But in the meantime, the nation of Israel forgot that they had a holy calling that God had called them to. And so many times they turned over to idolatry. They worshipped other gods. They forgot who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And, and so because they forgot what God had first done, they turned aside to worship other gods that were not able to save themselves, let alone the people. So the fulfillment of all of this starts in the very beginning of the New Testament with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John giving us this telling of the story of Jesus and how he came into the world. So we've been taking some time to study that, but before I go there, I want to actually turn to Luke, excuse me, Isaiah in chapter 7, because there in chapter 7, we just read a couple of weeks ago, was a prophecy about this Redeemer, about this Messiah, about this coming one who God would send to his people. And in Isaiah chapter 7, in verse 13, it says there, Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so he would send his son through this virgin birth, and this will be the sign to the nation that God's fulfilling his promise to them, that this woman who has never laid with a man will conceive and bring forth a child. And that child will be a son, and that son will be called Jesus. And the word is Jehoshua or Yeshua. God is salvation. And he should call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Verse 15 says, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. In other words, there will be this ruler who will be have a government that will be oppressive over the nation of Israel. They will be part of a different kingdom, even though they're a kingdom that God has set up to be their own entity, if you will. 
but the government will actually be oppressing them at the time that the Messiah comes. So that's interesting because I don't know about you guys, but in this time, in our own nation, it almost seems like God's not in control. Ungodly men are being raised up and are making rules and oppressing and taxes and, and all these things. And not only that, but people that aren't in government are terrorizing us as a nation as we have this freedom and one of the greatest nations in the world and yet people are coming in in various ways, some of them more obvious than others, and they are setting up, they're buying things, they're doing things, and there's all this fear about what if, what if, what if these people come in? What if they terrorize us? What if they blow up things like San Bernardino? What if people are killed by their weapons? How are we supposed to continue to live on in this nation where we've been, in many ways, promised by our leaders that we will be in peace? Well, we know that true peace can never come from a government that sets it up. It can only come through the Prince of Peace. And so it's a reminder for us that though the government may promise us things, and though individuals might come up out of nowhere and promise us things that they can't, they're promising things that they cannot truly make happen. Peace does not come from without. Peace comes from within. And it only comes when Jesus is the Lord over your life. And so this King of Peace is coming. And he's coming in a way that you and I would never select. He comes in humility. He comes in obscurity. He shows up on the scene. And basically the whole world doesn't even know that he's there. There's no place for him in the inns in the town that he goes to. And some of us actually went to the journey to Bethlehem this year. And as we saw the humble beginnings that our Savior went through, we realized that he was born into a, a, a town that was off the beaten path. He was born into a place that many people considered not really worthwhile to go to. He was born into a place where many people had never been. He was born in Nazareth. Nazareth was never mentioned in Scripture until we get the Gospel account and we find out that Jesus was born there. And so here we have this Son of God, the King of all kings, the Lord of lords. He's born into humble beginnings. But then in chapter 9 of Isaiah, we have this other prophecy and I thought I had marked the verse. There it is. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says there, Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called. And these are the names of Jesus. We think of names, we think of their given name. But these are names that the prophets gave to them. The name was more than just a title, but it's actually, it speaks to the character of Jesus. And you and I, whether we realize it or not, that we have a name that's not really our name. We have our character that speaks more about us than sometimes our name does. And so he says here, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase in his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That God's going to set up this government. 
And it will be according to the throne, the lineage of David, but it will be an everlasting throne. Nobody will ever dethrone this king. And his name is Jesus. And so we turn forward, if you will, to the book of Galatians, where in Galatians, Paul speaks about this, this kingdom. But this kingdom comes through a son, Jesus. And it says there in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 26, he says, For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ. He's speaking to this New Testament church. They are a church, but they need reminded. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You represent him wherever you go. We have this Bible study with these men on every other Wednesday, and Cody Harbison is part of it. I don't know how many of you guys know Cody Harbison. And he speaks a little bit about this. He says, you know, I didn't recognize how much I was bringing shame to the Lord until I thought about it. Like I thought about the business that my dad and I have. And they trim trees around town and, you know, he's got a sawmill and he does all these different things around. And, but when he was younger, he would just go trim trees with his dad. And his dad, of course, had his name on side of the truck that he would be driving. And he said he didn't realize how much it mattered until he thought about it like that. Because when he's driving his dad's truck around town, trimming trees, if he goes through somebody's yard or if he does a burnout on Main Street... It looks bad on his dad and the business, the professionalism. And we in the same way, if we really thought about that, that God's sign is on the side of our truck or on the side of our life, then we represent him wherever we go, even though his name in many ways isn't physically written on us somewhere. His spirit dwells in us and we do represent him like that. We're his children. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, meaning that you belong to him, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're all heirs of salvation according to the promise that God gave Abraham all the way back in Genesis. And so, now I say, verse 1 in chapter 4, that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. In other words, we were slaves But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave to sin, the idea, but a son, and if a son then you are an heir of God through Christ. And so Jesus coming and becoming that descendant of David, sitting on the throne, procuring salvation for those who would believe in him by faith, we are now heirs of that promise that God gave to Abraham. So that's how it all ties in. So with that big long 
in, you know, introduction, I want to come back to Luke chapter 2, because that, all of that, that big wide array of scripture and those promises, and then Paul talking about them in Galatians is the fulfilled promises, makes this event of Jesus being born so much more important than we might realize. And so in Luke chapter 2, we come to this in verse 1. It says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so think about this. It says, in those days. This is not like a fairy tale has started, you know, once upon a time. You know, because nobody knows when that time was. But when you read this story, the placement, the birth of Jesus happened in a specific time in history in this world that we live in. It has dates. There are people who were kings at the time. And so when he says that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, he's talking about a specific time period that anyone who knows anything about history can look back to that time and go, oh, that was about between this year and that year. Because when Caesar Augustus called for a decree for there to be a census taken, much like our own census in the United States, that was the first time in the Roman Empire that that had ever taken place. It was the first census that was ever given. And though you might look at the world and say, well, that was because Caesar was trying to figure out who he was going to tax, and he was going to do that. That was his purpose. He said, you know what? I want to know how many subjects I have so I can know how much money ought to be taken from them so we can support this big empire. Because until Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire actually had three leaders. And one by one, they got picked off until Octavius is his actual given name. Octavius was named Augustus after a pagan god. And it was only that name that was given to things that were um, considered sacred. You know, his rulership over the nation was now guarded by religious right. And so him being called Augustus Caesar, he actually was at that time accepting worship as a god. So he was the ruler over the kingdom. The first time they'd ever been ruled by one sovereign. There was no longer a senate. There used to be a republic, kind of like our own, where there would be a senate that would also make decisions, and it was ruled by law, not one person. But now here we are, where one man can say the word, I decree that there will be a census taken. And he's doing it so he can tax. But what God is doing is he's using this rule, this ruler that was there in those days, in order to orchestrate and move around some pieces in his worldly kingdom, to do something spiritually. Because what does the prophecy say? It says that the Son of God will be born in where? Bethlehem. But where are Joseph and Mary residing at the time of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit? Nazareth. So they have to make this journey to Bethlehem in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled. But they didn't, you know, they, they weren't like moving there just to fulfill the prophecy. God did it because they wouldn't have chosen at this point in the pregnancy to go, hey, let's take a big road trip. The equivalent would be in April about, you know, the 10th, Kelly and I are like, you know, the baby's about here. Why don't we go on a long journey? No one does that, right? You stay close to the hospital. You make sure your bags are ready. And you make sure that everything's in, in place in case 
the water breaks at the time that you're not expecting. And it always does, right? No one knows the day or the hour that a baby's going to be born except God. And so we do all that we can to be prepared. And I guarantee that Joseph and Mary were doing the same thing. So at that time, can you imagine, you're about to have a baby, and your ruler, your dictator says, hey, why don't you go to your city of birth, where you're from, your hometown, and we're going to make a census. You know, I could imagine me going, well, that's not fair. We got stuff going on. We don't have time for this right now. But it says that Joseph and Mary headed that way. So in verse 2, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now in that day and age, the, the woman would be able to stay home and Joseph could have gone by himself. But for whatever reason, they chose to stay together. Now, many people that study this passage and look at history, they assume that it's possible that Joseph, in order to take his wife with them, she wasn't wanting to stay there anyway because everybody there was kind of mouthing her, saying, hey, she was unfaithful to Joseph. Well, you can imagine a husband going, hey, let's, we're, we got to go up to Bethlehem anyway. Why don't you come with me? Maybe you won't have to deal with all the mouthing. Now, whether that's the case or not, Scripture doesn't say, but it says there that, so all went to be registered, in verse 3, everyone to his own city. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so, what does Bethlehem mean? Does anybody know? Bethlehem means breadbasket. Bethlehem, breadbasket. I can't really break it down for you. I just know that's what it means. And it's interesting to me because when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the bread, and Jesus, one of his names, is the bread of life. So it is fitting that the bread of life would be born in Bethlehem, the breadbasket. That's what would hold the bread of life. I like that. Just a little side note. So he's born in, or excuse me, they go to Bethlehem and he is a descendant of David. So verse six says it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so she brought forth her firstborn son. It came to pass during that time that they were in Bethlehem that it came to pass it was time for her to give birth. Now this is all orchestration of the Lord. The kings of the earth think that they're in, in, in charge of the events, but really God is. So he fulfills the being born in Bethlehem and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in... Excuse, sorry, I just skipped ahead. I almost spoiled it. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, I've always thought of swaddling clothes of what they have now. They have these little things called swaddlers. It's got little, you know, buttons in it. And you basically, you put your child in it so they can sleep well. Because I don't know if, I just learned this a couple years ago, but babies tend to like want to move around. Or when they move around, they don't sleep. And so they have these little things you can wrap them up like a little cocoon. Kind of like a little glow worm. Do you guys ever have those? And you put them in there and they basically, they have their arms kept right here so they're not scratching their face and so they'll sit still and sleep well 
And it also keeps them from rolling over and suffocating like many people have had issues with. And so it holds them still. But this wasn't something soft like that. This was actually ripped up cloth. It was ripped into strips and they wrapped it around the baby. And in that culture, Kelly was actually telling me this week, they would take salt and rub it on the baby, not like to be rough, but to help the skin be clear. But then they would wrap them in swaddling clothes to make sure that their limbs stayed straight so they wouldn't have curvature in them. And so this is something they would practically do. So the sign, we'll find out later, we keep trying to jump ahead, they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So a manger, we get the picture, we see this just down the street, there's this big wooden thing. Uh, the thing they were in was actually like a cave. It was damp and, and it wasn't very warm. And they actually were laying him in, we think of a manger, we think of this little wooden bed that's got hay in it. It's actually a feeding trough. It's not meant to hold children. It's not like a little, you know, a little rocking cradle or anything like that or a baby bed like we would get. It's, it's a feeding trough. Imagine, if you will, your firstborn child is born and you're like, uh, here's a feeding trough. I'll lay him there. And they lay him down. We have these roll around carts in the hospital and... Many times they have like a plastic deal on the top that's got high sides and something real soft and it's got the head elevated. That's not what the Son of God got. He got a trough. And so, you know, we would, I don't think many of us would lay our enemies' babies in a feeding trough, but that's where the Son of God was laying. Verse 8, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, and they were keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. We see this over and over. When angels appear to men and women, it's like their first response is, Oh my gosh. Like they don't think it's a human being. They notice that this is an angel. They were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Do you know what good tidings are? It'd be like good news. That's what gospel means. Godspell. Good news. I bring you good news of great joy. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, a Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This will be a sign to you. You know, you can imagine they're going, okay, so there's been a baby born. This is a big city. There's lots of people in the city at the time because this is the census going on. What do you mean? There was a child born? That's pretty likely that this happened. Well, how are we going to know that it's the one that we're looking for? He says, that the angels tell them, this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes who will also be lying in a manger. And they're like, oh, well, we know what a manger is. We're shepherds. That's a feeding trough. Well, that'll be obvious because no one would possibly lay their baby in a feeding trough. That's when we'll know. And so I think it's interesting here that God introduces his son, obviously, to Elizabeth, who's going to have John, who's going to be the forerunner of the gospel, introduces this news, this good news. Gabriel mentions it to Mary, who, of course, at that time, worships the the Lord, just for all the news that she's just heard. And then the good news is mentioned to, of course, shepherds. 
Now we may not get this because in our minds we're thinking of David. King David was a good shepherd. He went out and he watched over his flocks. He sang to them. He kept them calm. Psalm 23 points out all the things that a good shepherd does. But the shepherds in that day were not good people. They were not known for being upstanding citizens. They were thieves. But these shepherds were the ones that were keeping the flocks, many believe, of the sheep that would actually be sacrificed in the temple underneath the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And so they were close to Bethlehem. They were close to where the temple was. And so here we have these shepherds. They're just out doing what they do by night. And that's at the time when the good shepherd is announced to those who are shepherds over these lambs. And this is fitting because the angels are actually announcing that the Lamb of God has come. That you would think, you know, shepherds would be interested in the Lamb of God. And so here we have this announcement to these unlikely characters who receive the good news. And I think it's interesting because many times the most likely people to receive the gospel are people that are not what we would consider worthy of it. The good news has been given to those who are poor in spirit, those who realize that they need a Savior. The good news has been given to sinners. Jesus didn't come to save those who think they are well. He came to sinners. He came to people that recognize, hey, there's something about my life that needs to change. Many people, if you've ever tried to share the gospel or ask them if they know Jesus, that you look at them and you're like, hey, do you know Jesus? And they're like, of course I do. But their life doesn't reflect that. They don't understand that, hey, I'm a sinner. They might even say to you, I don't need a savior. You know, I've got all my things together. I don't, you know. So they're not recipients of it. But these shepherds are out there. They're watching the flocks by night. And God sends his angels to announce the coming of his son. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I think it's interesting because we went to that journey of Bethlehem and it scared me. We were standing there and these guys are talking to us, these shepherds, and all of a sudden there was this spotlight and there was these angels, and I think they had them like up in a tree stand or something. They had this blue spotlight and all of a sudden this chorus of ladies starts singing this beautiful song. The announcement happens and then immediately the angels are worshiping. And can you imagine, if you will, there's these shepherds, they're just standing out there and they get this this worship chorus. Hallelujah. You know, this glory to God in the highest. Peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, this is their response. Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. God's been graceful enough. He's been merciful enough to tell us this good news. Let's do something with it. Let's go and see this promise. Now, here's the deal. Most people hear about this promise and their first response is not to go and see what God has done. Their response is to go, I'm too busy right now. And Jesus was born into a world that didn't have cell phones, didn't have Facebook, didn't have this constant contact that makes us too busy for God. And yet, when Jesus came, most of the people in the world were too busy. They didn't see the first coming of Jesus. They missed it. 
because they hadn't simplified, because they didn't listen for the voice of the Lord, they missed out on the blessing. And so, their response though, this ought to be the Christian's response when God reveals himself to us in a special way. Let us now go to where God is. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste. It doesn't say that they kind of dawdled around and, all right, let's go see what's going on. They just saw angels and they respond to the word of God with haste. He says, let's make haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. The Christian ought to spend their time listening for the voice of God through the word of God. And when he tells them something, making haste to see if it's so. And when they find out that it's so, notice what these simple shepherds do. It's not overcomplicated. They make known widely to everyone around them, this is what God has done. We overcomplicate it. We say things like, I don't completely understand everything I've learned about God yet, so I'm not going to say anything. But these shepherds, they simply, in response to what God showed them by the angels, they went to see God where he was in Bethlehem. They found the bread of life in the bread basket. They saw the fulfillment of the things they were told. And then in response to that, they worshipped by obedience and going, but then they also, their, their lips were loosed. They told everybody. Now, when we, something impacts our lives, what do we do? Something we're really interested in? We're excited. We tell people. You know? If we win a raffle and we get the blanket, I want people to know, right? We do. We're excited. You know? When my wife and I had a good day yesterday, we throw it up on the book of face. We want people to know, God really blessed us today. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I don't like shopping. I get about a third of the way through the day, I'm like, I'm done. Let me out of this thing. The traffic, uh, the commercialism drives me nuts. Uh, of course, you know nobody likes to just spend a bunch of money. But God blessed our day. And it wasn't because I was like on my A game. It's because the Lord just gave me the ability to just let loose and enjoy the time with my wife that I don't get all the time. And so here I am telling everybody, and we got a cool sign at, um, at, at uh, Hobby Lobby. I now like Hobby Lobby. I was telling people that, but I wasn't even excited about getting one. And then I went and saw all the cool signs, and I was like, hey, I like Hobby Lobby now. So when something impacts us personally, what do we do? If it's something that's really made a difference in our lives, we can't help but tell people. It's just what's on our lips. And when Jesus impacts us in a way that we can practically understand and feel and experience, we can't help but tell people. If you don't have much to say about Jesus, maybe he hasn't had the impact on your life that you think. Maybe you need to dig a little deeper and say, Lord, what is it that you're trying to do in my life? I'm not saying this to be condemning. I mean this to drive you closer to the Lord. Because when the Lord impacts someone, you don't have to tell people. It'll just be what they notice about you. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, just real quick, there was a, a teaching. Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We were just there a couple weeks ago at a men's study I was at. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says there, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing 
but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So there's two statements. Two you are statements. He doesn't say you have to try to be or you will be. He says you are the salt of the earth. We give the earth flavor as God's children. And then he says you are the light of the world. He says a city set on a hill can't be hidden. If you're a Christian, if you're a born again believer, you are a city set on a hill. We're a group of individuals who are set on a hill. His light shines in our life and people notice. We give flavor to the world because we've been seasoned. We've been purified by God. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, who is the light of the world? Jesus. But when he impacts our lives, we become what he is. And then he says there, therefore, in light of those two truths, you are and you are, he says, let your light shine. He doesn't say make your light shine or force it to shine or make it happen. He just says, let your light shine. If you are these things, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, how do I let my light shine? I'm in a a tough spot. We live in a world that is very corrosive. It's very against Jesus. So how do we let our light shine in such a dark environment? Well, we were sitting in that Bible study and I'd never considered it before, but turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. How do we let our light shine? It's not anything very uh, earth-shattering. It's not something that none of us can do. It's something that each one of us has the ability to do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Excuse me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. This is a tough one, but it's, it's something that we can do to let our light shine. He says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Don't complain and don't argue. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Among whom, if you'll do these things, you will shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I may not run in vain or labor in vain. He's saying, do all things without complaining and disputing. And if you'll do that, people will see Jesus in you because no one does that. How do I let my light shine? Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become. This is the impact that that will have on you. You will become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. If you try to do all things without complaining and disputing, it will... will refine your life because you'll realize that you can't do that on your own and you will need the Lord to do it. And if you will do that, it will make you shine like that city on a hill. Your light will shine and Jesus will be made known in your life. So we're back with these these shepherds and as they've been impacted by the Lord, verse 17 says, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Jesus is the son of God. These angels told us, we went and looked. Behold, there was a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Here he is, the Son of God. 
And all those who heard it, verse 18, marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Everyone that heard their message marveled. They were amazed. Their jaws hit the ground because they knew the promise that had been given. But Mary, verse 19, kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. What did the shepherds do after that? They told everybody they they walked into contact with. They were impacted by this event. There was a lot of emotion. There was a lot of excitement. But notice what they had to do at the end. They're still shepherds. They still got stuff to do. They got a flock that's being untended. So they went back to what they were doing. Many times we are impacted by the Lord and we're like, Lord, I want to be used by you to proclaim this message. Just free me up from my daily responsibilities and then I'll go do it. But notice what the shepherd does. These simple shepherds, they've been impacted by the news, but they still got to go back to reality. You and I, we, many of us, not all of us maybe, and so I'm not going to be presumptive, some of us might have to go to work the next day or on Christmas itself. Many people have to work the day of Christmas. For those of us who are blessed with opportunity to stay at home and enjoy it with our family, here's the reality. We're still going to have to go back to work on Saturday or Sunday or Monday. And at that point, we can easily go, okay, I've been impacted by Jesus, and I'm going to go back to work and be the grump. Or we can be impacted by the Word of God, We can share it with everybody that we can on Christmas Day, including our families. We can be a blessing to them. Let's be a blessing to our families during the holidays. I know it's hard. Even the extended family that we can't stand. Let your light so shine. But then, as you go back to work, or as you go back to watching the kids, as you go back to the stuff that nobody else sees you doing, you can glorify God in those things too. These shepherds were working, no doubt, in obscurity. Nobody knew what they were doing. Only them and God. And yet, what they were doing is they were guarding the sheep that were going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people because they were still doing the sacrificial system. What they did that nobody else saw mattered to other people and it mattered to God. And so, let me ask you, are you like the shepherd? These humble individuals, these people that no one knew what they were doing. Are you listening for the messages that God's trying to send your way? And how does it affect you when you hear those messages? Do you get excited and go check it out to see if it's so or not? Or do you just kind of take it and you're like, well, God spoke to me. Eh, I'm busy. And then when you go and see what God has done, does it impact your life so deeply that you want to tell everybody that you come into contact with? And then, after that, do you finish well? Do you go back to your everyday drudgery, day in and day out, boring, what you might consider kind of contempt lifestyle and go, God can't use me here. Or do you go back with joy going, God's going to use me. I don't know how, but if I'm faithful, God's going to reveal Jesus to the world through what I do every day. Because that's the reality. God does that. He doesn't call us to salvation and then go, you're on vacation from now through eternity. He goes, go back to work. Be faithful there. Let your light so shine. You are salt. You are light. Let me work through you. I don't know about you guys, but that's what I struggle with. God, I want to be used by you. Can I please like have a vacation day? Then I'll be used by you. 
what I find is I'm actually making more of an impact when I'm around the 400 people God sent me to every day than I ever am when I have a day off and I just serve me. So, this Christmas, realize that when you go and celebrate Christmas, enjoy the heck out of it. Enjoy it for the right reasons. But then after the Christmas season is over, don't go through the doldrums afterwards. The excitement's not over. The next day is Christmas too. God is still Emmanuel. He's God with us. And he's going with you to do the things that you do. Whether it's back to work, whether it's watching the kids day in and day out, even though they don't you know, thank you for it. Whether it's going back to school, whether it's whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's what Paul wrote. And that's why he gave us salvation. So we can be freed up. We're no longer guilty. We no longer have to suffer shame. We can be freed up to just serve him in whatever we do. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you can relate to our daily. Thank you that you've come to us in the miraculous. That you arrived in a very practical, humble way, in ways that we can't comprehend. But thank you also that you aren't the God of just our salvation. You've become the God, the, the, the counselor, the wonderful, the mighty king, the Lord, uh, the one who's going to take us through this life in the normal, everyday, boring, whatever we might consider, doldrums. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a hope that goes beyond the daily. A hope that we have been impacted by, hopefully, so that we, that would be what is coming off of our lips as we interact with our families, our co-workers, the people we can't stand. Lord, give us a, a love for them like you have a love for us. Lord, help us to see them as those who could be impacted and become joint heirs with Jesus in his kingdom. Lord, thank you for the Savior. Thank you for being God with us. And Lord, I just pray for each one of our families and for us as individuals that the hope of the season wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go away as the, the holiday goes away practically. Lord, help us to live daily with the hope of a risen Savior who's going to He's currently preparing a place for us. He's prepared eternity so that we can enjoy it with him. But in the meantime, Lord, you've left us here to be salt and light. Lord, let us shine for you. In Jesus' name, amen.